Hello and welcome back to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Rhiannon Ashman, the Deputy Editor of MIMS Learning, and I'm joined by my colleagues Sangeeta Krishnan and Dawn Powell. We are editors rather than clinicians ourselves, but as always, we aim to support your day-to-day work as a clinician and take the hassle out of your CPD by highlighting some of the interesting topics that our experts have covered recently on MIMS Learning. By the end of this episode, you will have learnt more about problems in paediatric and adolescent gynaecology, and if you stay tuned until the end, picked up some helpful hints on syncope. Also coming up, Sangeeta will be talking to GP Dr Daisy Lund about plant-based nutrition and health, the benefits of this approach and how to support your patients if they want to move to a plant-based diet. Let's make a start then on what can be a sensitive topic for patients and tricky for clinicians as well. We're talking about gynaecological problems in children and adolescents. Consultant gynaecologist Miss Naomi Crouch and paediatric and adolescent gynaecology fellow Dr Sarah Channing have written a brilliant two-part series for MIMS Learning, looking at both common and more complex problems in paediatric and adolescent gynaecology. After completing these modules, you should know more about how to assess a child or adolescent, common problems that may appear before puberty, such as labial adhesions, as well as pelvic pain which may present after puberty. The authors also take a look at menstrual dysfunction in adolescents. It's well known that irregular periods are common in the first few years after menarche. But at what point does this become more irregular than would be expected? And when can you diagnose polycystic ovary syndrome? These are points I'm going to be chatting with Sangeeta about shortly. On the more complex end of the spectrum, the authors discuss how you would spot Turner syndrome and manage the ongoing health issues that individuals with Turner syndrome might have. Disorders of sex development are also covered and we'll discuss the challenges of terminology in this area during this episode. And finally, Miss Crouch and Dr Channing give an overview of malarian anomalies, that is, differences to the typical internal anatomy related to the uterus, fallopian tubes and upper two-thirds of the vagina, and Rokitansky syndrome, in which there is a congenital absence of the uterus and upper vagina. Sangeeta, there's a lot of information covered in these modules. What points would you like to hear more about? Yeah, you mentioned labial adhesions, but what are the other common gynecological problems that clinicians may see in a child who's not yet started puberty and how would they present? So yes, labial adhesions or labial fusion are common in girls under the age of seven, affecting up to 5% of girls. Labial adhesions are usually asymptomatic, but occasionally present with urinary problems such as pooling of urine in the vagina. This can occur alongside vulvovaginitis, which is another common presentation in girls aged between 2 and 7. Vulvovaginitis presents with itching and soreness as the primary complaint. Optimising vulval hygiene is the mainstay of treatment here, and the authors give some tips on this in the module. So thinking now about an adolescent presenting to their GP with concerns about irregular periods, when would a clinician be concerned about periods being more irregular than expected? Periods would be considered to be more irregular than expected if a cycle is lasting more than 90 days beyond the first year after the start of their periods, if cycles are less than 21 days or more than 54 days long and the patient is more than one but less than three years after the start of their periods, or if cycles are less than 21 days or more than 35 days long, three years or more after they started their periods. Based on European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology Guidelines, you can diagnose polycystic ovary syndrome if one of the above criteria for irregular cycles is met. 
and there is clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism. But you should take care as these are both very common in usual adolescent development. So a true diagnosis of PCOS is difficult to make until after adolescence. Disorders of sex development sounds like a pretty broad term. What conditions does it include? You're right. Disorders of sex development, or DSD, is an umbrella term that covers conditions arising from a difference in observed and expected sex development. This could include karyotype, gonadal tissue, or genital appearance. The authors discuss how, in the past, terms such as intersex, pseudohermaphrodite, and testicular feminization were used, but these were inaccurate and generally disliked by patients. DSD has been largely accepted in the medical literature although there is now a move towards describing this group of conditions as differences in sex development, which would fit more appropriately with our better understanding of anatomical variants in those with no medical condition. The authors flag up that it is important for clinicians to be sensitive to the fact that seemingly innocent descriptions or language can feel pejorative to patients. One of the conditions covered by this definition includes congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is the most common DSD with an incidence of 1 in 14,000, Girls may present with genital differences at birth, typically with a larger-than-expected clitoris and single-opening common channel of the urethra and vagina. Complete androgen insensitivity syndrome is another condition. This is an X-linked recessive condition in which the gonads are healthy testes and no uterus or upper two-thirds of the vagina will develop. As with all DSDs, care and management via a multidisciplinary team is essential, including the involvement of psychology. Thanks for that information, Rhiannon. You mentioned Turner syndrome earlier. Could you talk a little bit more about what it is and how it might present? Turner syndrome occurs in approximately 1 in 2,000 live births. It occurs when there's either total or partial loss of the secondary sex chromosome in a phenotypically female patient. Diagnosis is often made in childhood with poor growth, but it may present with a failure to enter puberty. Management would generally involve induction of puberty, which should be under the care of a clinician with experience in this, usually a paediatric endocrinologist. Once pubertal development has been completed, hormone replacement therapy should be offered. Thanks for discussing these modules with me, Sangeeta. We've only just skimmed the surface of what's covered here, so you can find links to these modules, common problems in paediatric and adolescent gynaecology, and complex problems in paediatric and adolescent gynaecology in the podcast notes and read more there. Next up, we have Dr. Daisy Lund as a guest, talking to Sangeeta about plant-based nutrition. I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Daisy Lund, who is an NHS GP and member of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. Welcome, Daisy. Thank you. So tell us, what brings you to this cause? Yeah, of course, I'd be delighted to. So I qualified from medical school back in 2002, And I followed quite a conventional medical career. Um, I did all my hospital jobs and then I went into general practice in 2007. It was only really until 2019 that I came across a documentary on the health benefits of a plant-based diet. And it sparked my interest. I'd never really thought about nutrition before. We don't get much medical education on nutrition. So it wasn't something I knew very much about. And I certainly wasn't talking to patients about their diets very much in general practice but I decided to give plant-based eating a go just out of interest really just and it was only really meant to be for a two-week trial and you know in those two weeks I felt great (laughs) Um, had a lot more energy than usual and I was sleeping a lot better than usual I'm quite a keen runner so I was doing a lot of running at the time and I noticed I wasn't getting any muscle soreness after a long run I was recovering a lot better 
And so this sort of spurred me on to doing a bit more research about plant-based diets and the evidence. And I found overwhelming evidence for the health benefits of, of eating this way. And then I found a plant-based nutrition course online, which is a distance learning course that's run by the University of Winchester. And I did that actually in the first lockdown in 2020 in the pandemic. It was through that that I met Dr. Shireen Kassam, who's the founder of Plant-Based Health Professionals. Plant-Based Health Professionals is an organization that provides education and advocacy on whole food plant-based diet, both for the prevention and treatment of chronic disease, as well as for supporting planetary health. So we're a growing group, actually, UK-based, and you don't have to be a health professional to join, but the majority of the members are. And we have quite an active website where I'd encourage listeners to go and check out. You don't have to be a member. There's a lot of free resources on the website where we collate the evidence, we present the literature and webinars. There's fact sheets and there's all sorts and as an organisation, we also provide education, so I'd be happy to come and speak to groups of people about plant-based eating in general. So we do a lot, but yeah, all about diet, lifestyle, nutrition, and how to eat for health. During a consult, how can GPs talk to their patients about this issue? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that we do do... I know, look, I'm a jobbing GP. I know how busy it is, you know, the day-to-day. You know, it's difficult to get the time with the patient to go through all the problems that they present in that 10-15 minutes, let alone try to navigate the conversation towards diet and lifestyle. But I really feel that if we don't address these issues, that we are doing a disservice to our patients. You know, certainly for me, with almost now 17 years in general practice, I feel like just prescribing without addressing the root cause of chronic disease isn't good enough. So I really try to find the time, even if it's just a minute or two, I know it's difficult and it's a busy consultation, but, you know, just sowing those seeds about what are you eating? You know, how much fruit and veg are you actually eating? How is your sleep? What about exercise? You know, it's all about looking at someone holistically. And I think all GPs know this. It's just how to do it in the time that we have allocated. And that is the real challenge. But I think it's important to try. And I think because there is really strong science supporting plant-based diets in chronic disease, I mean, if you look at the studies, the meta-analyses that we have with prospective studies, you know, some of the numbers I can give you are astonishing. So you're looking at reducing risk of cardiovascular disease by up to 25% on a whole food plant-based diet. Type 2 diabetes, 50% reduction. Hypertension, 60% reduction. You know, and that's not even including things like keeping your BMI in check, having lower cholesterol readings, all these things that take up so much of primary care. And, you know, and for the patients, it's living with these chronic illnesses, having to go to all the appointments, all the blood tests, medications they take that cause other side effects. So really, if we don't address the root cause of some of these chronic illnesses, I think, you know, we won't get on top of it for patients. So, yeah, I think try to incorporate it in the consultation, maybe just start with something like fruit and vegetables, getting an idea of how much your patients are eating you know, red meat, could they cut out processed red meat? We know that's probably the worst. WHO has already said that, you know, processed red meat is a, a group one carcinogen. So why don't we mention that in consultations to patients? That I think that's probably the place to start. Keep it simple. Is a plant-based diet safe and healthy for people of all ages, including pregnant women and children? Yeah, it is safe. It's very safe for all stages of life. And this is backed by all the major medical and dietetic associations. 
including the American Academy of Nutrition, the British Dietetic Association, the Dietitians of Canada, and even our own NHS, they've all agree that a well-planned vegan diet is not only safe for all stages of life, including babies, children, pregnancy, but it actually offers long-term health benefits. So absolutely, we would encourage it for all our patients. The main considerations would be to ensure that your plant-based population are having a B12 supplement. And that is really important. Some people are on restrictive diets such as FODMAP. For these people, would switching to a diet that is predominantly plant-based help? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's obviously harder for some people who are already on a restricted diet, but I think it's taking it back to the beginning and finding out why they're on such a restricted diet. So have we definitely got the diagnosis correct? You know, things like IBS, usually our diagnosis exclusion. So going back to make sure that actually there isn't a misdiagnosis. People shouldn't really have to exclude major food groups for long periods of time, particularly these healthy food groups that we know are so good for their gut microbiome. So quite a lot of the high fiber foods that are found in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, etc., that form a large majority of a plant-based diet are so good for the gut microbiome. They help the production of the short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids can have a huge benefit to lots of different parts of our our body, not just our guts. There's a lot more evidence coming out now that it can even impact things like immunity, our mood and psychological health. So all sorts of really interesting literature coming out from the gut microbiome. So I think it's a real shame if people are excluding these beneficial food groups without proper, perhaps, nutritional advice. So I think it's going back to find out with your patient what's causing the problem. You know, is it just a bit of gas, which I think if you're not used to a high fiber diet, that might happen and that will gradually get better. Your gut does adjust. There's also different techniques you could use to eating things like pulses and lentils that help with those sort of symptoms while you're transitioning to a higher fiber but it'll be a real shame to exclude these very healthy foods that we know are very very good for us the majority of the UK population are not meeting their dietary requirements for fiber and this can lead to all sorts of problems later on. Thank you that was very useful information. Could you suggest resources for GPs that provide evidence-based recommendations to change practice? Well, I'm definitely going to say our own website. So the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, we have a lot on there. And our founder, Dr. Shreen Kassam, she is an NHS consultant, still practicing the NHS as a hematologist. She has a monthly roundup of all the latest evidence and all the latest studies. So she will present that in a really nice, readable, digestible format. We also have recently launched our own podcast. So myself and Claire, Claire Day is another GP in London and we've recently launched our podcast for the plant-based health professionals it's called in a nutshell so you can download if you prefer to listen to your information rather than read it we're on all the usual streaming services and we try to address different topics each week so we will have usually consultants or experts in particular areas most recent one is on planetary health and respiratory health actually I learned a lot from that not knowing that there is actually evidence to promote eating fruit for things like COPD and FEV1 markers. So really interesting episodes there. Is a plant-based diet a privilege? Would it be affordable to eat only plant-based? Yeah, I think it's a really excellent question. And it's one that we have to address because we do want to be as inclusive as possible. And I think, you know, if you think about diet, what we are advocating for is a whole food plant-based diet. 
So going right back to the basics, eating your fruits, your vegetables, your whole grains, legumes, so beans, pulses, lentils, these all feature quite highly in the diet. And quite a lot of these products, if you buy them in a particular way, are actually quite cheap. So, you know, you can buy dried beans, dried pulses, cans even, and these are not expensive foods, potatoes, rice, you know, these are all staples that can be bought economically. And I think it's important to consider that rather than a processed vegan diet, which we are not advocating for at all. So that, you know, the supermarkets have really sort of gone into this plant-based, you know, vegan space. And you see that in lots of shelves now. Fair enough. Most people have a burger once in a while and we'd say, okay, have a plant-based burger rather than a, a beef burger. These aren't foods from the supermarket shelves that we would necessarily recommend and they can be more expensive than the meat counterparts so if you do eat a processed vegan diet I agree it can be a little bit more costly but that isn't really good for your health (laughs) or your pocket so try to avoid those sort of foods really would be my advice but yeah these are foods the whole foods are things that are affordable if you buy local seasonal you know in bulk and that sort of thing so I don't think vegan diets or plant-based diets should be more expensive at all. In fact, we've seen a reduction in our food bills since we transitioned a few years ago. You know, meat and dairy and things are not cheap either. Thank you so much for that thought-provoking info. I'm sure it will spark conversations around this topic and lead to positive changes in practice. So thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, if people are interested, they can reach out to me and and Claire and anyone from plant-based health professionals with any questions, because I think it's an important thing to consider and try to incorporate in our consultations where we can. For more information on the subject, check out the MIMS Learning module on Health Outcomes with Plant-Based Nutrition by Dr. Daisy Lund. Thanks, Sangeeta and Dr. Lund. We're back now for our final segment, which aims to give you three clear and useful practical points to take away. Today, we're focusing on the importance of the three P's in syncope. We will be discussing what these are and why they are an important part of your clinical history for a person who has a suspected episode of syncope or a faint. So, Dawn, what's our first point? Or rather, what's our first P? Our first P is prodrome. And prodromal symptoms, or lack thereof, can help to determine whether the cause of an episode of syncope was cardiac or vasovagal. Prodrome is a sign or symptom such as feeling hot and sweaty preceding an event, in this context an episode of syncope. Speaking at MIMS Learning Live London, Professor Raj Thakkar said lack of prodrome can indicate a cardiac cause. Cardiac causes include structural heart disease and arrhythmias. He explained that compared to people with vasovagal syncope, people with cardiac syncope have a worse prognosis. Whereas cardiac syncope is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular death, vasovagal syncope is not. Given a different risk profile, the management of cardiac syncope is different from that of vasovagal syncope. Thus, questions about the prodrome are important because they can help to determine the cause of an episode of syncope and consequently can help to determine the management approach. The second P is provocation and it can also provide insight into the cause of an episode, specifically the type of vasovagal syncope. Provocation is the event or circumstance that triggered the episode of syncope. Provoking factors can be external, for example, the sight of blood or a hypodermic needle, 
Fainting in these factors is known as reflex syncope and is a type of vasovagal syncope. Bodily functions such as coughing or even urinating can also provoke syncope. This is known as situational syncope and is again a type of vasovagal syncope. Other provoking factors include standing up for too long, extreme temperatures or an emotional shock. However, exertion can also trigger syncope and this can be a sign of cardiac syncope. Our third P is posture. The posture or position a person was in prior to an episode of syncope has important implications for whether or not they can continue to drive. The DVLA states that someone who has had a single episode of vasovagal syncope while standing up can continue to drive and need not inform the DVLA. It also says that a person who has an episode while sitting can continue to drive and need not inform the DVLA. However, this is only if a trigger has been identified and that trigger can be avoided while driving. If a trigger has not been identified or cannot be avoided, a person who has fainted while sitting must not drive until the annual risk of recurrence is assessed to be below 20%. There are also different DVLA regulations depending on the cause of syncope and or whether there is a reliable prodrome. So to sum up, our three key points, our three Ps are prodrome, such as feeling hot and sweaty. It's important for helping to determine whether the cause is cardiac or vasovagal. Provocation is important for helping to determine the type of vasovagal syncope and understand what triggered it. And finally, posture. This is important for determining whether a person can continue to drive. Thanks very much, Dawn and Sangeeta, for these three very clear points on syncope. For more information about the three Ps of syncope, read our conference report from MIMS Learning Live covering Professor Thakkar's talk on the topic. You'll also find lots of other learning on our website, which you can access at mimslearning.co.uk or by clicking the links supplied. That's it for this episode. We look forward to joining you next time. Goodbye for now.